What a beautiful day. The sun is shining after this massive storm. <laughs> never knew it would, I never knew it snowed in Southern California. No. I know that was hail, but it's, it's warmer in Fort Wayne today. I looked at the weather. They're, in the high, they're having a heat, well, a heat spell. They're in the high 50s today. So Fort Wayne, we're colder than Fort Wayne. Isn't it crazy? All right, so should we pick up here on our, our study of Mark here? Just kind of a, br- a brief recap. Uh, recall last week we spent a lot of time on Jesus healing the paralytic in, in chapter uh, 2, verses 1 through 12. Uh, we talked about um, the paralytic and the four man. We talked about their faith that Jesus could saw could see. Uh, we talked about how Jesus dealt with the, the paralytic's uh, soul first. When he we talked about the sins being forgiven, um, and then we talked about uh, the, the scribes questioning everything that was going on with that. That Jesus could see in, into their minds and, and knew what they were thinking, and then he heals the paralytic. Uh, of course, does that in response to the questioning about the authority to forgive sins. So heals the paralytic to show that, yes, he in fact has the power not only to heal, but for the forgiveness of sins. And that he, you know, is the true Son of Man, and, and this is his office as the divine human Messiah. And I remember all were amazed at that time. Okay, so we, we got through that, and then we moved into this next text. Which I didn't get through all the way, so we'll kind of pick up and... and uh, Refresh on it here. It's Jesus um, calling uh, Matthew, Levi, and then eating with the tax collectors and the sinners and, and the physician uh, language. And we did get into it some, but I will pick up on that again today and then we'll move on. So uh, before we do that, why don't we start with the invocation and the Lord's Prayer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so if you would, why don't you turn... uh, in Mark to chapter 2, um, verse 13, the title is, is Jesus Calls Levi. Of course, we know that that's Matthew, as we talked about last time. So I got most through this, but let me just reread it again, get our context here, and then we'll talk about kind of the last on what this means and wrap, wrapping it up here. Okay, so Mark uh, 2, 13 uh, through 17. Uh, he, meaning Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. Verse 15. As he reclined at, as he reclined at table in his house, Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes, the Pharisees, 
when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciple, disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. All right, briefly, we'd covered a lot of this, but just to, just to, uh, just a quick recap of what we did. So here they are eating at Luke's house, or excuse me, Levi's house, which is Matthew's house. Levi is the host and prepared this great feast for all these guests. Uh, so then we, we read in here in verse 15 that uh, tax collectors and sinners were sitting there reclining with Jesus. And this is really what makes this feast so noticeable, so notable is that Jesus was eating with tax collectors and he's eating with these, what they say, sinners. Now recall last time I talked a lot about what the tax collectors were and why they were hated by the Jews so much. The tax collectors were seen as evil. Remember, they would extract money from the people, uh, would give some of it to the Roman Empire, but then kept some of the money for themselves and made themselves rich. So tax collectors at that time had a really bad, you know, bad uh, reputation within the Jewish community. So here we have it. We see now Jesus is eating with these horrible people, right? Uh, we talked about the disciples that were with him um, in verse 15. Then in 16, we hear the scribes of the Pharisees, which is, can be translated scribes and Pharisees. We talked about what the Pharisees were and what the scribes were. But it was the, this group of people that then brings the question in verse 16, is why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And of course, as we discussed last time, this is clearly meant to be an accusation, right? Here, nothing can be worse than this. Can you imagine eating with these kind of people is what they were saying. The Pharisees, they, they shun these people as outcasts and really are demanding that Jesus do the same thing here. So, in verse 17 then, <clears throat> this is where Jesus comes back at them, right, with this a rhetorical question. He said, and, Jesus, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, which would be the Pharisees and the scribes, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so Jesus is replying back with them. Of course, this rhetorical question is unanswerable. But he, remember I said he answers them kind of on the basis of their own premise. The Pharisees thought that they were the ones who were strong and healthy. And they looked on the tax collectors and the sinners as those who were ill. So then on this assumption, Jesus is talking about this physician. Generally speaking, of course, a physician is for the sick and not for the healthy. So the physician's very business is to deal with the sick in order to cure them. Again, Jesus is not associating with his people, as I talked about, as you know, birds of a feather flock together. No, it's his great mission to be with these people and to save the lost. So Jesus, what he's saying is, Jesus is the divine physician. He came to heal sinners. So just as the physician must have contact with the sick, so Jesus' ministry also required him to associate it with sinners and social outcasts. Okay, now I, I want to. Well, the one thing I didn't get to cover last time, and this is this is very important here. <clears throat> so it's in the last verse there. He said, "So Jesus says in seventeen, 
And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, meaning that the sick do, right? But then he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, okay? So this kind of seemed to think that Jesus is saying that really, if you think you're that righteous, if you're this righteous person as the Pharisees did, well, you don't need a call from Jesus, right? I mean, you're, you're righteous. Why would you need this guy Jesus? So, and this is what's going here. So the righteous then here, what he's saying, are like the strong, the, 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 these people that don't need a physician. But really the point here is this, and this, what Jesus is talking about being righteous, is that is there really anyone who's truly righteous on their own without side Jesus? And that's a point he's making. And of course, we know this in our, our understanding of original sin, that all human beings you know, are, have an inherited sin. And no one is righteous. You become righteous only based upon what Christ has done for us. And again, remember that Jesus' original statement back in Mark one uh, fifteen. He said to everybody, repent and believe in the gospel. So this repent aspect of it, of course, is Jesus saying that no one's righteous without him. So everyone needs Jesus, and that's his point here. Um, The term righteous in this passage here, and actually mainly throughout Scripture, when, when we talk about righteousness, when Jesus talks about not to call the righteous, it's, it's a Greek word, diakaios is what it is. And really when you look at its etymology and how it's used, um, I did a lot of reading on this. It's it, it interesting that it has a real forensic aspect to righteousness. It's this legal field aspect. And really what it is, is it's this uh, forensic justification Meaning that the, you, only those you're only truly righteous if you've had God's verdict in your favor, and that's how we see our justification, right? If we see it in this heavenly courtroom, we've got God as the judge, we've got Satan as the prosecuting attorney, we're the defendant sitting in the courtroom, and the evidence is per, that is presented before God is nothing that we've done. But everything that's, prevented, uh, that's presented before God, the judge, is what Christ has done for us. Both his active obedience, where he's the one, the only one that truly followed all the requirements of the law. And then passive obedience, where he actually suffered our sentence, uh, the sentence that we deserve for us on the cross. And because of that, when God looks at that evidence, when he looks at us then, he declares us not guilty, right? And that's this forensic term. And that's how this term uh, righteousness is used. It's this forensic way. So when we ever think of righteousness in the Bible, think of that courtroom uh, terminology that those who are truly righteous has God's verdict in their favor, right? And they're, you're acquitted and pronounced just. So the God declares sinners righteous for Christ's sake, apart, of course, from any merit on our own. So that's what, that's what this righteousness talk is. Uh, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. But again, remember at the end of the day, we are called, we're sinners, but then we're declared righteous forensically, as I just talked about. So that's what's going on here in this. Okay, any thoughts on that or follow-up questions on the calling of Levi and then Jesus eating with these nasty tax collectors and sinners. No? We get it here? 
Okay, there we go. So if there's no questions, why don't we move on then to a question about fasting. And this is kind of interesting because we're in Lent right now. Pastor talked about fasting in his, uh, last night in his sermon. So, and I'll follow up more. So kind of this is a, a shift here in Mark. So you know, obviously in, at the beginning of chapter 2, we focus really on Jesus' actions and kind of the primary orientation of his ministry on earth, which is the forgiveness of sins, right? So now, though, this kind of a pivot that Mark's doing is Mark is going to really now start to look at kind of the action of his followers, okay? Uh, why do they act the way they do? We'll kind of go into this here in the next, some of the stuff here in Mark. But then, really here, Look how early this is. Here we're only in chapter 2. We're going to automatically start seeing something different right away. Uh, We're going to see that that, that things are happening different and then that the old ways now cannot contain the new ways that are coming in from Jesus. So here's the shift. And then we're going to see quickly after that, because of this, another shift's going to take place where already the Jews, the Pharisees, are going to already start to plot to kill this man for what he's doing here. Okay, so that being said, that kind of brings us into now this question about fasting. So if that's okay, I'll read through it, and then we'll just get the whole context, and then we'll kind of go uh, through uh, line by line. Okay, so Matthew chapter 2, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, And then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth of an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins." But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Okay, you kind of see this idea of the, the new coming out here in this. So let's take a look at this here. Okay, verse 18. Talk about now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Um, recall now that this, this takes place just right after the previous, what we talked about, where Jesus and, and the disciples are having this big feast in Levi's or Matthew's house. Um, and now this seems, we don't know really why, but to have been a day when the disciples of John thought that they had to fast, and the scribes of the Pharisees likewise. Okay, so John's disciples, remember we talked about the, John the Baptist at the beginning, so these are John's disciples still here. They're fasting, and the Pharisees are fasting. And uh, so if you have your Lutheran study Bible here, again, talking about the, the Pharisees, I've t- talked about that before. <clears throat> but 
does a good note again about who the Pharisees are at the bottom on 2, 18, uh, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 18 in the study note. It says, Pharisees, originally the name of this party meant the separate ones. What separated the Pharisees from other Jews was their rigorous interpretation and strict observance of the Jewish law. So I've talked about the Pharisees. These, of course, these people uh, fasted and had very, very strict regulations. John's disciples, though, um, don't know a lot about this and why they were fasting. I did a lot of research on it. A lot of commentators don't know. Uh, We know, of course, that John did preach this stern call to repentance. Recall that. And then had the baptism, which was all preparatory for the coming Messiah. But I guess we can include that this John's preaching included some type of fasting, but we don't know because Mark doesn't really say this, and Matthew, Luke, or even John. Uh, there's nothing in the Gospels that tells us the exact teaching of John Baptist and why his disciples um, were fasting or fasting their time. All that we know is it's mentioned here that John's disciples were fasting. And of course, the... Uh, the Pharisees, they include John's disciples with them because it's just kind of another dig at Jesus. Well, you're just, you know, I, we know you think we're different as Pharisees, but John's people aren't there. They're your people and they're fasting, but then your own disciples are not. So that's kind of what's going on here. But we don't know really a lot why John's disciples were fasting on this day. And of course, it says then on an 18 here, and People came and said to him, and uh, these people are probably the, the scribes that we talked about earlier in, 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 in chapter 2 here, who seem interested in Jesus' unusual activity. Remember everything that's going on. Of course, now he's got a lot of eyes on him here. People are now constantly, these, the, the Pharisees and the scribes are going to be watching Jesus, okay? So that's where their eyes are on him here. And they, people came to him and said, they ask, why do John's disciples and the disciples of Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? Okay, Again, we can see this probably as a jab. It's not a true question. It's a jab that suggests that Jesus and his disciples are not truly pious, as the Pharisees were. They're, they're, not, as, they're not pious and God-fearing children of God, as the Pharisees are. So that's probably the, the reason they're asking and then they speak of the disciples of Christ, really. Remember how they always do this? I always talk about Jesus' disciples. But we do know that really the criticism here is directed towards Jesus himself. Okay? But when, when, when we look at this, why Jesus is, your disciples do not fast, uh, I, I think we would first need to, to say here is that, that, that Jesus is not doing anything here in terms of them not fasting to contradict the law. So we know that Jesus and his disciples did Jesus does allow for fasting, right? And and so if you want to turn in your Bible or I can read it to Matthew 6:17 where Jesus talks about fasting. If you recall uh 6 it's really 6:16 6, through 18. Uh, Jesus says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, 
that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So clearly the, the, the point of this here is not that Jesus is throwing away all aspect of fasting, okay? This is more directed, I think, to what the Pharisees were doing. Uh, so oh, it, what I think the reason why this, this idea of fasting is coming up here in Jesus' disciples, and this is included, is this, uh, that fasting, you know, Jesus is going to object to fasting when it's not done for the uh, proper purpose in the proper way, which apparently the Pharisees were doing here. Okay? Any questions on that or follow-up? Okay. So then in response to, their, to, the, to the question, um, Jesus says, he comes with, the, with this, and now we're going to see a couple they're not parables. They're parabolic to a certain extent. We won't get into real parables until 4. And of course, Mark doesn't refer to them in parables. But when we get into the parables in 4, Mark refers to what Jesus is saying are parables here. So I don't even know if we can clar- classify them as pre-parables, but they're kind of parabolic. Okay, Jesus has given these um, some, some situations and then making a point out of them. But it's... I don't think we can really clarify them as par- or say that they're parables, okay? So Jesus first starts out with this on verse 19 then in response to this concept of fasting. Why aren't, why aren't you and your disciples fasting as the Pharisees are? Um, Jesus says to them, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bi- bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. All right. So the explanation, really, if the Lord, we think about it, is, is fairly simple, right? We know. We know that Jesus is the bridegroom. He's the, gr- the groom. We know that all throughout Scripture. Um, with him is the best man, which is the, the, wedding, the wedding party. So the disciples are to be seen as the kind of the groom's attendants in this situation. They're not the wedding guests, but they're part of the, the, the wedding party. And the groom is surrounded, is now surrounded by his chosen friends. Okay, and that's what Jesus is saying, that he's the bridegroom, he's there with them. So this is a happy and joyous time that he's where that he's here now. So fasting now, because the groom is here with his with the with his, uh, the wedding guests and, and the wedding party, it's, it's, the fasting is out of the question why I'm here, the groom. And of course, no one fasts as the wedding. Fasting is a time, for, as we know, for sorrow or penitence. But feasting is associated with joy. So feasting is proper then here because the Messiah, the groom, is now present. So that's what Jesus is meaning by this, the, the groom and this wedding uh, party scenario here. But then in 20, he goes on to say, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Okay? That time indeed was coming, of course, when the groom would be taken um, out of their midst, when we know when Jesus' passion and his death by his enemies on the cross. And then it's at that time that's appropriate, at that point, that they will fast in that day. So it's appropriate for sorrow. So you see what's going on here with this uh, wedding and groom language here about why his disciples are not fasting at this point. You see that? 
Any questions on that or anything further to add? The groom and the wedding. Jesus is again making a point. Okay, he'll do it now two more times about this question about fasting with another parabolic type analysis here. So let's look at verse 21 then. Uh, he, this is a new, new kind of cut off here, a new, a new point Jesus is making. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, and a worse tear is made. All right, so Jesus kind of now expanding out what he's doing, what's going on here. It's about fasting now, but now the attention is kind of getting more here. Of course, in this, in this look at what he's talking about, this sewing, we all know, well, I didn't really know until I read about it. I'm not a sewer, but you can't mend an old piece of clothing, right, with a new a patch that is new. If you do, I guess when you wash it, wash it, the new piece will eventually shrink, right, and tear away from the old. So, but what Jesus is saying here, and given this, is so basically you need to, dis, as opposed to doing that, you need to discard the old clothing and get a new one. Uh, not a new patch, but a new robe. And this is kind of what Jesus is getting at that. And it's this, is that the old Rome, or the old robe, I guess with the hole in it, is the Judaism, Judaism of that period, what the scribes and Pharisees made it with their doctrine, which as we see is centered on this false righteousness of works. Okay, That's the old robe. Um, it was then useless to try to patch this up with the teachings or practices of Jesus, the, the new would only tear the old worse than ever, right? So this doctrine of grace and faith and now what Jesus is teaching that springs uh, cannot be combined even a small part with this Pharisaic Judaism that's going around. So that's what Jesus' point here is expanding it. Discard the old robe of works, take in its new place the new robe of Christ's righteousness. So he sees expanding this, not only fasting, but to the old, all the old ways of thinking that the Pharisees to, to Jesus and when he's coming now. So that's what's going on with this sewing a piece of unshrunk, uh, unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Anybody have any questions at or a different way of looking at it or anything else to add or differently? Okay. So we had the, the, the wedding, we had the sewing, and then there's one final aspect of this here, again, and it's in verse 22. And verse 22 says this, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Okay, now we can, when you read that, it's in, in conjunction with what we just talked about with the sewing. I mean, this is kind of, it just completes that thought, right, of the sewing, the old garment. So the old cannot be kept by adding a little of the new, right? The old wineskin cannot be kept 
with the new wine. Now, just on that, the, what this is referring to is back in that time, the wine skins are these goat bag skins. When they were new, they could handle and withstand the pressure of the new fermenting wine that was being put into it. Okay, but if the if the goat skin was old, your wine uh, sack your wine sack was was old, and you tried to put the like I said the new wine in it. It, 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 would, it would burst, okay? So that's what's Jesus here. And it fits kind of nicely with what we just talked about, is that um, the, old, you cannot, the old and the new cannot be mixed. So Jesus here in these, really, both of these combined, is illustrating the significance of his presence, that, you know, really he is communicating something new here. Um, Jesus is comparing his ministry to unshrunk new cloth and new wine. His gospel message tore away and burst the old traditions and practices about fasting and table fellowship here. So that's what's going on with these. I had a question back there, Barry. I was going to ask, um, there's a concept out there about dispensationalism where God has these different dispensations and basically God changes his mind. And how do you refute and we know God doesn't change his mind. You know, he's he's had this ordered from the foundation past. But um, it looks like well, oh, the old the old didn't work, so we're coming in with a whole new uh, new approach here now. How, how do you uh, and I don't think that, that. I don't think I don't think God didn't change anything. It was what happened was the Pharisees here were changing what they thought God required, and they had changed everything. This is everything that the Pharisees did on their own. This isn't what God did. Of course, the fasting. When you read on what the the, the Pharisees were going even way above what was required in the Levit- Levitical requirements of fasting, so they've taken kind of this all to a new separate level. So I don't think we can say that God had that one way and that he's changed his mind. I think that Jesus is, is showing that the Pharisees have, have, have changed, right? That's what's going on here. So I don't think it's a dispensation. It's more that the Pharisees have gone off farther over and above and come up with their own works righteousness that wasn't required by God. I think that's the point. Anything else? Pastor might have something to add on that too. Yeah. So I think it's important to see in verse 18, now John's disciples and the Pharisees um, were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? So in the first response, he's giving an answer to why his disciples do not fast. But in the second response which includes the piece of unshrunk cloth and the new wineskins. He is balking against the comparison as if he were just a sect mm-hmm. along with John and the Pharisees. So here he's saying that he is something totally new. And I think in that sense that's correct, like particularly with the incarnation. There is something now new under the sun. There is God in human flesh, and he's not just come to be another teacher or create another sect. But 
something altogether and entirely new has come. So again, it would be the burden would be upon a dispensationalist to demonstrate that Christ is here teaching anything other than that. But I think that's what he's up to. That definitely fits too with yeah the the wine skin and the and the the old cloth for sure. Okay, good point. Good question, Barry. Um, any other questions or anything further to add on that? Okay, <clears throat> then we can move on here to the next section here. We see is in our in our study Bible. The next title here is Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. So how about I read uh, through that and then we'll come back and, and talk about this. So Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, Mark uh, 2, starting with verse 23 through 28. Okay, so one Sabbath he was going through the grain fields. Uh, one Sabbath he is Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abithar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which, is, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, And also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Okay. So we see here, starting at the beginning here, what's going on? They've still, the Pharisees, they've got this hawk-like watch over Jesus still, right? Everything he and his disciples are doing for one minute, they're on him like a hawk. And of course, Jesus is no way trying, on his part, trying to escape this, right? So Jesus uh, and his disciples, on a Sabbath, were taking a walk through these fields of grain, which I guess we can assume that they were apparently ready for the harvest because they had, you know, the, uh, the, the plucking the heads of the grain, so it could be harvest time. Don't know if Jesus said they were walking through the field or it was through a pathway, and maybe the Grain was coming onto the pathway. Speculation on that, but I don't think that really matters. So here they are, Jesus and his disciples. They're strolling through, being hungry. Now, Mark doesn't say that, but Matthew adds that. The disciples were hungry. What do they do? They pulled up the stalks, right? This grain or whatever. And they apparently were rubbing the ears between their hands to extract the kernels. And they're, they're eating it. That's what's going on. Okay, so the Pharisees see this, and then in verse 24, what happens here? We see, and the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Okay, so right off the bat, the Pharisees, they see this, and they already charge immediately a breach of the law, or a breach of um, what, was, what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. Now, there's a lot written on this, but uh, really Exodus 20.10 talks about the Sabbath. And it says, But on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do, you shall not do any work, okay? 
you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gate. So we know that, right? They talk about no doing of work. Yes, there's other in, in Leviticus talking about what is what is and what is not work. Reaping, um, harvesting is work. So I guess the, the Pharisees, when they see that the disciples are picking the grain, obviously this is reaping or something. They believe it is a work. Uh, this reaping, which is forbidden on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees here, they, they're quick to... to say that the disciples are being disobedient to the Sabbath regulations, okay? So that's what's where they're getting this up. This pick, pick, you know, picking the grain is, is a work, and that's, that's why they're making this charge. You get them, all right? So then, any, any questions on that? Anything further to add? Okay. So then we move on, and they say, look, why are you... They doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. And then Jesus responds to them. Um, I'm going to read through. Let's read. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any priest to do, eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Okay. So what's going on here in these verses here is Jesus is referring to an incident in the Old Testament where David and his men ate the consecrated bread in the tabernacle when they were hungry. And this event is actually recorded in 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 6. And if you want to look at it, it's page 470 in the Lutheran Study Bible. We'll just kind of go through it real quick and kind of see what this is going on. So... 1 Samuel 22, 1 through 6. <clears throat> and that says, uh, Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with the matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send to you and which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever else is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessel be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread and the day that's taken away. Okay, so this is where this is coming from here. In this passage, David, who was on the run from King Saul, goes to Ahimelech, the priest, and asks for food. The only bread available, or the only food available, was this consecrated bread that was kept for the tabernacle for the priest to eat. But despite this, Ahimelech gave the bread to David and his men because they were in need. Okay, So what's going on here? This is significant because it shows that the need for food and sustenance can sometimes outweigh 
uh, the strict adherence to the religious laws. So Jesus then is using this example to show that the Sabbath really was made for people's benefit and that showing mercy and compassion to others is more important than the strict adherence to the law. All right, so that's why Jesus brings that up to them. Of course, the Pharisees would have known this story. Then Jesus really enunciates that clearly the principle that is involved here. Then when we go to verse 27, and Jesus, <clears throat> and he, Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It was, the Sabbath in here is not created as a means really to, inherit, to merit the grace of God, but it was God's own gift to man. And it was a day of rest. And it was a day when God would come in a special way to man. Where? In his word. Okay, and it's a day of worship. And that's, you know, of course, when we study the third commandment in the small catechism. That's what the small catechism is getting about this, right? The Sabbath isn't uh, this work-righteous requirement. And what the Sabbath now is, is for us, it's really about the ear, right? It's hearing God's word. And it's all about the gifts that's God giving us. And that's, of course, then what we believe in our worship, right? Our worship, we go to worship not as something pleasing to God, what we're doing. We go to worship because we received God's gifts. So that's kind of what's going on here with this concept of the Sabbath. So Sabbath now is really uh, that the Sabbath was, uh, Sabbath was, made, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's what's going on here. All right, that's consistent with our belief on the Sabbath today in the third commandment. All right, any questions on that or anything further to add? Sabbath. Okay, and then Jesus does the big conclusion here. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So, of course, I think it's pretty clear. Jesus declares that he has the authority over the Sabbath can can determine how it is to be observed. And, of course, he here is establishing himself as the ultimate authority. Why is that? Because he's the son of man. But let's look at note 228. I think note 228. Again here to kind of put this all together. It's in the study Bible. I think they do a good job. It says, Jesus' reason for referring to the story of David eating the holy bread comes clear. The Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus, is greater than King David. This bold claim to divinity is not lost on Jesus' critics, okay? So that's why Jesus has said that about David, then he's bringing it back to him, so the Son of Man, okay? So that Jesus is saying that he's the Lord of Sabbath. He's greater than King David. And the reference to Son of Man, we're going to see this more throughout Mark. It's a favorite self kind of designation of Jesus. It's used approximately 80 times in the Gospels. Um, its meaning kind of varies on different contexts, but it indicates most of the time that, of course, Jesus is fully man, but he's much more than that. As a messianic title, it combines the idea of a servant who will suffer and die for all people and the exalted Son of Man whose reign is everlasting. So that's the Son of Man. We're going to see this come up more here. All right. Any final, any questions or anything further on that?
on Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath. Okay. Moving on here, we'll go on to the next. That finish concludes chapter 2. So we can move now to uh, a man with a withered hand. So this story, while it, it, it does continue to focus on the Sabbath day activity, which we just talked about, and then we'll see healing too, which we've talked about many times before. It is connected kind of to our previous ber- uh, verses that we've studied, but really this now is seen as a introduction to a new subsection that really focuses on really a growing open and hostility to Jesus both from his enemies and then from people closer to him as we get down. So right, right now, already here, we'll see in 3.6, Jesus' enemies begin their plot to destroy him. So very early on here. Okay, so we'll read, I'll read Mark uh, 3, 1 through 6. And he, Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. There we go again. So that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were very silent. And he looked around at them with anger grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. Okay, so going back here. After, again, he entered the synagogue. Remember that we've, we've heard this before throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. He's, he, a lot of his ministry has taken place in the synagogue, and we've already heard that a lot about what's going on um, in the synagogues. And I'll recall that more, ma- mainly that this is really also a scene of where conflict happens. Remember, we heard about it when uh, the, the, the man with the unclean spirit, the Pharisees, there's... A, Things happen in the synagogues, and we've seen that. So this is kind of a continuation. This goes in the synagogue, things happen. We see here a man then. He has a withered hand. I don't know it's significant why it's that way. Some people say it's a chronic claw-like hand due to muscular atrophy, whether that matters. It's either by disease or accident, but clearly um, something very wrong with the hand. Withered hand, clonic, uh, claw hand, I guess. So, so they, this man, and, and they watched, okay, verse 2, and they watched Jesus to see whether he healed him on the Sabbath. They again, who is that? Luke, and Luke, when Luke's account of this makes it more specific, the they are clearly the scribes and the Pharisees. I think Mark, of course, implies that, but Luke says it, the scribes and Pharisees. So no surprise, right? It's the same same that we've been hearing over and over now. The scribes and the Pharisees. And then, as they watch Jesus, they're already doing, remember the hawk-like watch they're doing, they're always watching, they want to catch him, they want to get him, so they can accuse him, accuse him 
um, accuse him of healing on the Sabbath. So but it's interesting to note here, really healing on the Sabbath was not prohibited by any command in the Torah, which is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, um, or even the rest of the Old Testament. So, And then it's not even included in 39 types of works the Jewish rabbis determined could not be done on the Sabbath in the Mishnah. It's a collection of oral tradition of Jewish law. So really commentators have looked on that and say, even if there was healing, that there's nothing that that, that violate any Sabbath law. But uh, I guess what the leaders are doing here in the Pharisees, they're making requirements that you know, went beyond these Old Testament injunctions on what you could do on the Sabbath. Um, of course, as we'll see at the end, Jesus does heal, and they don't, they don't accuse him and arrest him that there because they know that there really is no violation of anything. Um, so really, they can't violation, find any violation of Sabbath law just by simply healing, but they're trying to do everything they can here, okay? So then in verse 3, we see that Jesus said to the man with a withered hand, Come here. Um, in, the, in the Greek, if you really look at it, get down to it, it, it's not come here. It would be arise into the midst. You know, whatever that means. This kind of represents quite a controversial move by Jesus, making sure then that his distractors, you know, he's really calling to attention to this because he wants the Pharisees to see what's going to happen, right? So it's kind of a dramatic deal. Arise into the mist, he tell this guy. So the scene is kind of becoming rather dramatic here. He says this, and then in verse 4 here, and he, Jesus, said to them, well, Jesus says to the Pharisees and scribes, he asks them a question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, comma, to save life or to kill? Question mark, right? But they, the Pharisees, were silent. So, so far, we've seen the Sabbath day discussion is really concerned, like either someone taking action or doing work on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus introduced saving a life or killing. And, and this really takes this discussion to a completely different, higher level. Um, but the irony here is, is that it anticipate really what's going to happen to Jesus starting here in 3.6 when Jesus, uh, when his uh, opponents... Uh, begin to plot to, quote, destroy him. So really the irony here could not be richer. The Pharisees are worried about kind of this life-restoring activity on the Sabbath, what Jesus is doing here with this man in his withered hand. Yet, at the same time, after they see this, what do they do? They begin plans to actually kill someone on that very Sabbath. So real irony here, okay? But of course, Jesus' question them is rhetorical, um, so it's rhetorical because when he asked this question, I guess everyone knew that the Jewish tradition allowed for the regulations of the Sabbath to be broken if it was life-threatening. That's why then when he says this to them, the Pharisees, they, they were silent. And they, their silence, you know, is really, we can see he's kind of consenting to Jesus' point. And it shows the weakness in their Argument. That's why they're silent. They couldn't respond to him. Okay, and then what happens? Are there any questions on that up to that so far? Are we doing all right? 
Okay, so then uh, verse 5 here, he, let's see. Okay, and Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was destroyed. Anger. Yes, I know pastor talks about this a lot, so you guys know this. Yes, Jesus gets angry. We know that. He gets angry here, right? And we know that this isn't the only time. Um, he gets angry at other times, especially, remember, in, in, during, the, um, during Holy Week when he goes in, his, his reaction to the sellers and the buyers in the temple um, with the money changers, he gets angry there. So Jesus is getting angry. Strong human emotion is typical. Mark portrays of Jesus as someone who is a, extremely human in appearance, but then also gets mad at these things. Uh, it's in defiance, you know, anything to, in defiance of God. So yes, Jesus was angry here, but but then it also says he grieved at the hardness of their heart. So kind of had look at a mixed human emotion. He was angry, but then in a very human way, Jesus had a mixed emotions here. Possibly he had a genuine, he was genuinely sorry for the Pharisees' stubbornness here. So two, two different emotions going on. Then he says to the man, extend your hand. And he extended it and his hand was restored. Um, note that Jesus really does not do anything, right? He doesn't touch him. He's not like the picking grain and trying to get to the... Jesus doesn't do anything, really. He does not perform any work on the Sabbath, but he just the healing happens. So really that means that there's nothing that Jesus did, anything concrete, which he can be accused by the Jewish leaders at this time. So there was no more work. He just extended his hand. guy extended his hand and it was, was healed, right? So... Couldn't, couldn't, you know, couldn't arrest Jesus right off the bat or anything like that because he did work or, or make an accusation against him. But then it ends up with then that his hand was restored. Uh, it's a Greek here, really, definition. is just brought back to its former condition. It's in this passive tense that points, obviously, to Jesus as the agent here, the way that Greek is. So no confusion that it's not Jesus, Jesus' power that restored restored this this man's hand. Okay? Then, six here. I'm going to try to get through this. Got a couple more minutes here. So after this happens, the Pharisees didn't believe, right? Just, they went out. The Pharisees went out and immediately, immediately, another marking theme, right? Immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus on how to destroy Jesus. So in their rage, of course, the Pharisees proceed out. They want, to, they, want to, they want to start to get Jesus, okay? But it's interesting. It's kind of unclear while the Pharisees would want to align themselves with these people called the Herodians, okay? So the Herodians were obviously they're a sect that were loyal to King Herod and his family, uh, who, of course, Herod was very loyal to Rome, so the, the Jewish people didn't like 
Herod because of that, because he's so loyal to the Roman Empire. So the Herodians, though, um, they, they followed the Herod and Herod's family, and they were considered a faction within the Jewish community, and the Jews considered them unpatriotic, okay? Because the Jews wanted complete independence from Rome and no imperial Roman dominance, but the Herodians on the flip side were all in favor of that, okay? So then you've got the Pharisees who are part of the Jews that did not like Herod and that. But now you have the Herodians, which would be on the opposite side. So this is, I'm not going to say which is which. There was one is the far, far right, one is the far, far left, okay? Either the, the Pharisees, the Herodians. And what happens? The Pharisees go and align with the Herodians, okay? That's how much they hate Jesus, right? They go to this, this group. So they... This political difference or whatever did not deter the Pharisees from enlisting, trying to enlist the Herodians in their plan to destroy Jesus. So the Pharisees kind of stir up the followers of Herod, who, who obviously Herod ruled in Galilee, hoping that, that then the Herodians could convince Herod to take sides with them, the Pharisees. So that's what's going on here, okay? That's what's very interesting about. They went to the Herodians, bad guys. And finally then, I'll end with this. Uh, how They say they, they, they went to the Herodians to figure out how to destroy him. And that's right in the Greek. It is destroy him. It, they don't, the Greek doesn't say to kill him. And why is this? It's to destroy. So this really indicates that Jesus' opposition here with the Pharisees, with their intent is more than simply just doing away with Jesus, right? Let's just quietly kill him and throw him in the river or whatever, right? No. They want to destroy him. They want to shame Jesus. They want to destroy him completely, including his reputation, okay? So we got to keep that in mind as this progresses. That, you know, it's just not a matter, let's just take this guy off on the side of the road, no one will know about him. No, their plan was more than that. They're going to destroy this man. They're going to destroy who he was in. They're going to destroy his teaching, and they're going to destroy his reputation. Okay? I think that's about all we can do today. Any questions or any follow-up on that? What we've gone to so far? All right, so next week we'll move on to kind of Jesus furthering his ministry here and some other things that happened and what the crowds are now doing. So we'll get into that next week. So thank you all very much. The Lord be with you.